This is the Gator Nation Football Podcast, powered by Campus Insiders, with your hosts, Alan Williams and James DiVirgilio. This place is an insane asylum in the swamp! Oh my! Now we know we're just a bunch of average stiffs. Welcome to the show. It's Tennessee Week. I'm excited to be in the studio next to James DiVirgilio. My name is Alan Williams. James, what's on tap for today? We've got a great show today. First of all, we've got Little Peyton in the studio with us, uh, one of my favorite Tennessee characters. Uh, he doesn't talk or do anything, but I'm looking at him right now, and just, just the mere sight of him makes me happy. We've got a good show. We've got on tap uh, Andy Hutchins, who is Alligator Army. He created Alligator Army, writes all the great content for them. We also have Bob Kessling, who I'm excited about hearing from. He's the voice of the Vols. He's uh, covered them since 1999. Really fun guy. Talk Tennessee with him. And we'll, of course, always do our typical in-depth analysis on last week's game as well as the game coming up this weekend and do a little bit of national news. And so this weekend, the Gators overwhelm North Texas, shut them out, crush them, we're going to dive into all of that. But I think the headline from this weekend is Luke Del Rio's injury. Let me ask you, James, was that a cheap shot? I, I don't think it was a cheap shot at all, actually. I understand why it looked that way on the field. Uh, if, if you don't know by now, that same player was a JUCO transfer, had, had actually hurt the SMU quarterback and tore his ACL uh, two weeks prior. But if you look on tape, it looks like he just gets caught up with Goolsby, starts falling down, and, and hits Del Rio almost at the same exact moment that Del Rio releases the ball. I'm really not sure what else he could have done there. Uh, so it, it it probably felt cheap live. After watching it a million times, I don't feel like it was a cheap shot. Yeah, there was a tough moment in the stadium there when he's laying on the ground, and I think every Florida fan watches the season evaporate in front of their eyes. And you know, originally feared that it was going to be an ACL tear. Doesn't look that way right now. It seems the reports that it's just an MCL sprain and maybe only out a few weeks. Um, I had all my PT friends texting me like his knee's done, ACL tear. So really good news for Gator Nation that he could maybe only be out for one to two weeks. Best possible news when you take a hit like that. And and you know we were up on the stands and one of our friends is a doctor and he's had his own MCL injury. And miraculously when it happened, he said, that looks like an MCL. And he winds up being right. The only trick to an MCL is they, they all heal at kind of wildly different rates. He probably has a grade one sprain. So some guys in the NFL play on that within maybe 10 to 13 days. Other guys, it might take four to five weeks. So I think the the LSU game is probably the best early target for him. But even that is going to be very questionable, I would imagine, depending on how well he can plant and move off that, uh, I think it's his front leg. So And it's not, you know, he's not a guy who's known for his mobility. So he's not doing a lot back there. You know, so maybe he could he could make it back a little earlier than somebody who's playing position that demands a more flexibility and uh, you know explosiveness. Um, let me ask you as well: What do you think about McElwain? He gets hot there, out in the middle of the field, yelling at North Texas players and coaches. How did you feel about his response there? <laughs> I couldn't really believe it when it was happening. It was like amazing and and awesome and probably uncalled for and he's you can see on the the slow motion replays like mouthing all these probably cuss words under his breath he's really really mad the players really responded really well to it and I I do think it's genuine I think if you're looking at McElwain he's had a a run of really bad luck with quarterbacks Uh, I think it's fairly obvious to say that Treon about killed him last year 
mentally. And so now he's finally got a guy that is really cerebral. I'm sure that him and Luke really relate well to each other with the way they think about the game. And he goes down in a meaningless game against a North Texas opponent that's a paycheck opponent. And all that's bubbling up to the surface and probably being taken out on a coach in Seth Luttrell who really had nothing to do with it. Uh, you know, So probably uncalled for, but I think both coaches understood where that was coming from. I mean, I completely understand it, that emotional response. If he knows that um, this guy has also injured another quarterback, sees his guy go down, sees probably in his mind most of what he's hoping for for this season be put in jeopardy. I understand that response. I don't know that I would necessarily like endorse his behavior, but I completely understand it. And I think it did show his players that, you know, he cares about them a ton. He's he'll stick up for them. So they responded well to it for better or worse. Uh, so I, I don't know. I mean, you don't really want to see your coach lose it, but I much prefer him losing it in this kind of way than even, you know, losing it last year, getting a lot of attention for losing, you know, his mind and yelling at Kelvin Taylor. So, you know, he has that side to him, but it felt like this was maybe a, a more justified response. Let's zoom back out now and talk a little bit about the game itself against North Texas. There are some things I know I learned, especially after watching the game on film, that I think will apply to the rest of the season. Let's talk about the star of the season thus far, a unit that we said in the beginning could be really special. They looked super special on Saturday. Thoughts on the defense? I mean, they were incredible. I mean, they shut them down on every level. I, w- I was so impressed by their performance that they, you know, really didn't lose focus. I mean, outside a couple of, you know, penalties on Jalen Tabor, it was really an amazing performance, you know, from top to bottom. They put such enormous pressure on North Texas offense. I mean, a ton of sacks. It went, they went crazy. Uh, they only allowed 53 yards in the game, which is kind of crazy when you think about it over the course of the game. Like there weren't any weird little moments or no big plays or, you know, so that's super impressive. Uh, and I know you've really been impressed with Coach Collins here. We were wondering aloud last season on the podcast, what would Jeff Collins be able to do on the staff? Who was he going to be like? How was his philosophy? And we haven't talked about him this year, but we definitely should. I think right now this is the best Florida defense I've ever seen. We've played against incredibly terrible and poor competition. True. We're going to find out more. But you watch how this team plays. It's really, really remarkable. We're first in a whole host of categories. We're allowing an absurd 4.7 points per game or 4.3. It's below 5. Um, it's just unreal. 1.3 rushing yards on average. And, and, and this is a unit that plays an NFL style of defense. We're not blitzing often unless we have positive numbers to which to do so. We play a lot of man press, uh, cover two man, a lot of NFL style defenses, which no matter how good you are in college, generally break down. And, and you have to give a credit to Jeff Collins, Randy Shannon, and the rest of the defensive staff with the discipline with which this team plays. A lot of penalties we had on Saturday. Some of those were certainly questionable. Uh, but But Jeff Collins has proven that if you give him elite talent, he will get the most out of them. Uh, the question remains, you know, what will happen next year in future years? We'll, we'll cover that later. But for now, he is maximizing this unit. And it, it, I cannot wait to see what they can do this weekend because seven sacks against an overmatched North Texas, negative 13 rushing yards, you know, 53 total yards, like you're saying. That is an incredible performance. I don't care who you're playing against. 53 total yards. This is a Division One opponent. I mean, just just really, really special stuff out there. Yeah, and essentially this defense has given up 
no legitimate touchdowns. I mean, the one they gave up against UMass that, you know, made us all nervous because we weren't scoring. They gave, you know, they basically gave them that touchdown through all that penalty yardage. And then Kentucky, you know, scores a completely meaningless touchdown against our third stringers at the end of the game. So with the gain on the line, they've basically given up one touchdown over three games. That's crazy good. And if they're able to clamp down like that on some of our more elite opponents, uh, this could be a historic season. Uh, So we've talked a little bit about, you know, from the beginning, wondering if we could get enough pressure up front. And we are leading the nation in sacks with 16. Does that surprise you? It it does. It it doesn't anymore. It's easy to look back and say, well, of course, what were we thinking? You know, everyone thought this defensive line would be great. But the number one thing we isolated was, could we get edge pressure? Could we get some sacks? We highlighted Zuniga. He was on our hype list. And lo and behold, he's living up to the hype. He has four sacks already. You know, we took the under on six and a half sacks being the total. And there's a lot of actually quality teams left to play. But Regardless, we're getting edge pressure with just about everyone. And a lot of that is really what Caleb Brantley's doing. He's kind of become the unmentioned person, yeah. Caleb Brantley. But if you go back and you watch tape, almost every single team is still double teaming him because they have to. And that is allowing guys like Sherritt, who was probably less heralded uh, coming into the season, a high recruit, not a guy that was getting a lot of mention, to wreak havoc. He's had a wonderful season getting man-to-man matchups on the line, taking advantage of that. And then seemingly at times you'll have our entire defensive line pushing them back. So it's really like a, a sack by committee approach. I would say Zuniga so far has been by far, though, the best one on the edge at flat out power rushing a guy and beating him straight up. Uh, he's showing a tremendous ability to do that, which, again, this weekend, I really can't wait to see it. You know, Tennessee's offensive line is not spectacular, but a good test for this unit, which so far has been completely unstoppable. Yeah, I like that sack by committee. I mean, they're getting pressure at every point. There's nowhere to go back there because, you know, if you get a push up front, maybe you escape to the edge or, you know, pressure from the outside, you climb the pocket, but there's nowhere to go. And then if there is a gap, you'll see Jared Davis or Anzalone filling those gaps and chasing down somebody who would even threaten to get anywhere. So that front seven is, or I guess front six in this case, uh, is performing really admirably. Um, let's move over and talk about the offense. Uh, it looks like we maybe missed Antonio Callaway a little bit. If you can catch my sarcasm there. Missed him a ton. Looked like a different team from the one we saw in Kentucky. Looked like a very different team, and that's why we always kind of caution about this whole sample size situation. Is you, you want to see more? You want to see more units. Um, I think in the game, I had thought the offensive line was was struggling. When I went back and watched it on film, the offensive line actually played really, really well. The only guy that I would have graded out as having a poor game was was Cameron Dillard, and he had a he had a poor game. There are probably three plays in general where he just gets completely beat, which affects our ability to do some things. But credit North Texas, the three three five confused us. It confused Luke Del Rio on multiple occasions. By the middle of the second quarter, Luke Del Rio was actually not making reads anymore. In fact, he was staring down whatever his first receiver was. So I thought that they played well. They played very aggressive. If you weren't in the stadium, they were within 10 yards line of scrimmage on most plays. Um, they, They had really scouted us well. They knew four or five of our plays in the first quarter before we even ran them. They just literally knew them. There was no deception, no fake, nothing that was getting them. So... I thought they did a great job of scouting us. We were probably somewhat vanilla, um, but 
it my initial reactions were different. So that's that's the thing that surprised me. When I put in the film, I thought the O-line dominated. We probably should have run the ball even more than we did. Passing is actually what hurt us in the first half. And uh, you know we were somewhat confused by a few of the things they did, and we just didn't really have a playmaker in Callaway that maybe they respected enough to get open. But Chris Thompson filled that role. He was wide open twice early in the game, and Del Rio was not looking for him. Uh, he finally did find him on the pass interference call. So he's probably looking for Callaway in those places or touchdowns. Yeah. So, so definitely I think you could make an argument that Callaway probably is the MVP of our offense. He And we'll talk about this on the, on the, on the end of the show, is that he's possibly more important than Luke Del Rio is right now. And we're going to find that out this week just because of what you have to account for when Callaway's in the lineup versus what you don't have to account for when he's not, especially with Cleveland out as well. You don't really have a number one receiver out there. Yeah, and Brandon Powell becomes way less effective without being in those combo routes with Callaway. They're deadly when paired together. Yeah, and I, you know, the offensive line, it's easy to criticize them, and, and they do deserve um, you know, some blame for our, I don't want to say ineffectiveness, but our not performing up to the level that maybe fans were hoping for. But we were missing Tyler Jordan, our right guard, who's maybe our most consistent guy down to down. And that, you have new guys switching in and out of guard. We started a guy um, in Richard Desir Jones who hadn't really played a lot. They eventually moved Fred Johnson over there. Still starting a true freshman on the right tackle spot. So lots of room for confusion if the other team is doing some weird stuff, which they were. So uh, that's maybe understandable. Um, but maybe the bright spot for the offense was our running backs. Um, good games from all of them in certain aspects, but, uh, you know, let's play a little stock up, stock down with each of these guys. There's four of them. Um, let's start with the guy who, uh, maybe is the most up and down Mark Thompson. Yeah. It's a, I feel like the stock is up on all of them, but Mark Thompson in this game, especially, I thought he missed the hole multiple times. And this isn't just like, Oh, maybe he should have found a different lane. Like he flat out altered the play and didn't run to the gap he was supposed to. You're thinking of that fourth and short Absolutely. jumbo package. Jumbo package, fourth and short, where you have Sherritt and Cox as the lead blockers. It's an off-tackle to the left, and he just goes left for a step or two and decides to just cut it right up in the middle of the right and take on a guy as though he's still playing at a small juco. If he follows his blockers, that's a touchdown there. We have that sealed. You have Cox running through yet another hole untouched, and Sherritt sealing off the top side. He doesn't. He goes rogue. He did that on multiple occasions. Um, and so for me, I guess I'll, I'll say his stock's a little down. When he does hit the right hole, he's tremendously explosive. You saw that on his touchdown play. He's running to a very high average. But on the crucial downs right now, if I were the running's back coach or the one that's in the meetings during the week, I would say, I'm not sure I want Thompson as the biggest guy to be running my fourth and shorts. He's shown a consistent tendency to not follow the play. And that is what you cannot have happen in those plays. Yeah, that was some of our reason for maybe not as many points on the board. We get down there twice. On fourth and short, don't come up with it. Uh, I, I was impressed by Jordan Cronkright. I thought he ran really hard, did really well in the spots he got. Of course, we're continually impressed by LeMichael Pirine, who you know shows great burst. Every time he touches the ball, I'm like, wait, who is that? Oh, yeah, I can tell it's him just by the way he runs. And you know, not as many touches for Jordan Scarlett. Uh, 
were you hoping to see more out of him at this point in the season? Well, he, he had nine touches in the game. I think Thompson had 11, uh, which was the most somewhere in that neighborhood. Or maybe just more more yeah. production, maybe I'm asking? I mean, that, it's, it's I think it's so hard to know because each week the, the committee kind of changes, right? So it's, it's, it's P. Ryan last week for 100 yards, and he only gets nine carries in this game. Does really well. I think all, all of them averaged above six, six and a half, seven. They all ran well. Yeah, it's, it's so hard to know. My favorite running back right now, though, is, is definitely LaMichael P. Ryan. Scarlett, I think, I think is going to be our best back if he can run through a gap and get to the next level. Uh, he's, he's very hard to bring down by himself, whereas P. Ryan's very elusive. Uh, Scarlett is very, very hard to bring down. He hasn't had gotten a ton of those opportunities. He, though, like Thompson, has also missed the hole a couple of times. Uh, I thought Cronkite and, and Michael P. Ryan have continued to show the, the best ability to hit the holes and maximize the yards where they're supposed to be. So I like those two guys as the stock being the highest where maybe they would have been coming in. But... I don't have a qualm with any of them right now, aside from really Thompson, when you put it on film, and there's a lot they can coach him on this week, I think. They've got to get him to follow the hole. Other than that, with Scarlett, the SEC play is going to determine which one of these guys can really play. When you're beating up against these terrible defenses, there's not a lot of difference. There will be a difference when you up the caliber of defense you're going against. Any more thoughts on this game from you? I mean, it... It's a blowout against an overmatched opponent. Anything else that kind of jumped out at you? Yeah, I thought. I think the thing was the offensive line. I thought really did great. Uh, we rushed for 255 yards, and it didn't feel that way in person. But but watching the film, my takeaway from this game was they did an excellent, excellent job. Uh, I thought our passing game was weak. I thought Luke Del Rio struggled. I thought North Texas did a lot of things that teams would do to try to take away some of the throws he doesn't make very well. But most importantly, there weren't there weren't guys that were very open. So I'm not going to hang that on Luke's situation, but. Uh, a few other small takeaways. It doesn't seem like any of our quarterbacks have any real commitment to running a proper play action fake. And I'm not I'm not sure what exactly that is. But if, if you watch us, we, we sort of put the ball out for half a second and, and about a yard and a half before the running back gets there, we pull it back. Not really a well-executed play action fake. Not really sure why, because we're running a pro-style offense built upon a play fake. Something to note this week against Tennessee. Uh, what's going on with that. But I probably came away a lot more encouraged after watching the film than I felt after leaving the stadium. Leaving the stadium, I was very disappointed. I was frustrated. feeling in the stadium. Yeah. But on tape, we were utterly dominant as we should have been up front. There were a lot of plays left on the field that were some simple mistakes. It wasn't like a, a technique problem. It was just a mistake. Miss a hole here, do something wrong here. Cam Dillard a little slow on some of these plays. Uh, some of that was their 3-3-5. Tennessee runs a standard 4-3, which we did great against with Kentucky. So I feel encouraged... Of course, there's new questions now with Luke Del Rio being out of the game that, sure. that we'll have to answer. But all in all, I feel better than I felt before, which is good. Typically, I think I go back and I, and I confirm my feelings from in person, but I actually felt better about it. Okay, it's time for a new little segment, James's hot take. Tell us about your hottest take from being inside the stadium. I'll tell you what my hottest take is, and it's been coming for years, and I'm finally glad to be able to express this. And maybe if enough of us tweet or write or Facebook post to the UAA, something will happen. But if you are sitting on the east side of the stadium, there are no speakers on that side of the stadium. You can't hear anything. You can hear just about nothing. So the the energy, the excitement, it just feels very amateurish. And here you're sitting in this stadium with 90 plus thousand people, and you've got this incredible environment and and you have no speakers behind you. And then the speakers sound blown in the in the north end zone. And you're just thinking, can we not invest in a quality sound system so that when you go somewhere, you, you can hear all the noise and all the songs and what's going on sounds good? 
Yes, we can. We have tons and tons of money to invest in this thing. The UAA just outlaid $100 million to build and improve other things. I hope speakers are on that list. And if not, let's have everybody email and send them some things so we can get some speakers on the east side because the east siders would like to hear things too. Uh, everybody tweet at Jeremy Foley. Get at him. Okay, thus endeth James's hottest take segment of the week. We're going to do a little bit of an SEC roundup here, but first, maybe the most, I'll use this word, delicious game of the week. The Cardinals of Louisville slicing and dicing and shoving pizza down the throat of those Florida State Seminoles. That was a glorious thing to behold, James. Oh, it was incredible. I was like giddy. Uh, Saturday was going so well, uh, especially at that point in time. And Axon Jackson, obviously, my guy, highlighted on the show last week. He, he, it was fun because during the game, you're thinking, this guy is the second coming of Michael Vick. He reminds me of Michael He's a Vick. He's wizard. And then Michael Vick tweets out later on that night that, you know, Lamar is five times better than I was, which which is awesome. I think you gotta love Vicks watching kind of a guy like him play. But it's pretty hard to put into words what he was doing to that Florida State defense. It's easy to look at and think, oh, Florida State's young, they're not good, whatever. That was unreal. It's the first time in Florida State's history that they've given up more than sixty points in a game. And, and, and that game could have been maybe eighty points if they let him keep playing. I mean, Florida State had zero chance of stopping him. He is an absolutely transcendent player. They do not play um, any team in the in the ACC, I think, that can really stop him from what we've seen on tape. The only question with him is, can he, can he really adequately pass the ball aside from running a drag route? But Petrino has been a master of that offense. He, he finds ways to only have quarterbacks run drags and then run the ball, and it works really well. But super fun to watch. I loved watching Florida State get killed. I love watching Jimbo have to, like, explain how that happened because there is no explanation and i can't wait to see what happens to both of those teams because Indeed. big moment for florida state right now confidence wise none of those guys ever expect to lose a game like that we'll see how they respond in the upcoming weeks how does louisville handle success and yeah in very interesting you're right moving forward i mean florida state played terrible on offense too they couldn't move the ball either of course ohio state looking ultra dominant against oklahoma urban has this team ready to go again? They're going to be interesting to watch moving forward. They've got some big games coming up. Yeah, you got to wonder about Bob Stoops at Oklahoma. There, there's got to be a Mark Richt effect coming Bob. in right now. Uh, you get just absolutely, utterly decimated by an Ohio State team that returns six starters. And here you are with your team that's returning, you know, I think 11 or 12, and, and you had more hype early on. But, but Urban Meyer, say what you want about him. When he gets a quarterback that can run around and throw the ball adequately, that is an incredibly difficult team to beat. And right now they look a lot better than Michigan does. So three games don't make a season. But regardless, Ohio State's team to keep an eye out on for it. All right, let's jump over to the SEC. Maybe the headliner, I guess, Georgia pulling a stunner by throwing a 4th and 10 touchdown pass to beat Missouri. Yeah, maybe headliner in the just horrifically bad SEC East, but Georgia stole a game they, they should not have won. Reminded me of them doing that to Auburn back in the day that kept yeah. us out of the SEC championship. Yeah, man, man coverage at the end with their best cornerback covering, I, I don't know, I don't understand why you play man against a freshman in that scenario. It's kind of an easy read for him. But either way, nice pass by Eason, good win by Georgia. Kirby Smart continues to sit on an unlit bonfire that's heating up, though. Um, and they, they escaped with their first SEC win. LSU Mississippi State. It looked like it was over. It was twenty three to three. Turn out the lights, go home. But it wound up being twenty three twenty. Thoughts on that one? Yeah, the fighting Dan Mullins making game. I didn't see one second of this game, uh, other than seeing LSU wearing their stank gold uniforms. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I think I'm just generally unimpressed by both teams. 
Agreed. Danny Etling, interesting to watch. Another Purdue quarterback. So Purdue transfers everywhere. Could have an Austin Appleby him. who we're going to talk a lot more. Don't worry if you're thinking, why haven't they talked about Austin Appleby in the quarterback situation? We will. But you could have a all-Purdue matchup with Etling and Appleby in the LSU game, which would be interesting. Okay, Auburn losing out to Texas A&M. So impressive win or disappointing loss? It's a good win by Texas A&M. I, I think it means they're potentially somewhat for real, actually. You were wondering if they really should be ranked. They probably feel like they should be. I think Gus Malzahn won't make it through this year. I think they're going to get rid of him. There's a lot of frustration in that fan base. There is. Uh, rightfully so. You know, he hasn't, he has done, he's done very, very poorly, which is sort of a head scratcher given the heights he hit with, with talent yeah. that wasn't his. Still a chance to turn this season around. That's two tough losses they've had. They you know, came close to beating Clemson. A&M is no slouch. Um, Alabama holding on against Ole Miss. Ole Miss taking these big leads and not being able to hold them. Are they going to do that every week? I don't know. I don't know either. That is that Ole Miss. Man, it's got to be frustrating being an Ole Miss fan right now. You're at new levels, but you're you're blowing a game to Alabama at a true freshman at quarterback, 24-3 lead, and you sort of just implode yet again. So Bama continues to defy everything and every year just win all these games, which is most impressive. Hats off to Nick Saban. And then some games that were a lot less exciting, like oh, the Fighting Will Muschamps against ECU, squeaking out a twenty to fifteen win. They were up seventeen nothing in a site that all of us are familiar the with. Classic Muschamp there, like they hey, we scored seventeen, pack it in, folks. Literally stop playing offense, literally, and hang on to win twenty to fifteen. Uh, Vandy getting absolutely crushed by Georgia Tech. Probably a lot of noise and says Georgia Tech is not a powerhouse at this moment and. Vandy on defense is supposed to be able to handle people. Not looking good for them right now. Yeah, that's bad. That's their forte with Derek Mason, and that, that's ugly. Kentucky played an absolute barn burner with New Mexico State, who, of course, we played, had on the podcast last year, like 62-49 to 49 or whatever the final score was. The game was close. Kentucky was losing for a lot of that game. Their defense is as bad as we said it was. Uh, their offense at least moved the ball, which bodes well for our defense, but just disaster. And then lastly, Arkansas just waxed Texas State. My takeaway in the SEC is this is the worst – since I have been a fan of the SEC East, that the East has been. It is awful. If I were on the outside looking in, you could make an argument it's the worst division in all of Power 5 football right now. There are some that contend for it, but it is that bad. It is really, really uninspiring to look at the SEC East. There's a a few that um, would ask you to remember some of those Big Ten or Pac-12 uh, conferences that are looking kind of down. Big Ten overall looking good, but uh, yeah, there's there's a Pac-12 division that would take umbrage, I think, with your assessment of the SEC East. Maybe I don't really know though. I mean, Kentucky, Vanderbilt. You're right. It's it's Georgia, right? Is pretty us, miserable. All, I mean, everyone is. It's just it's a dumpster fire. It's horrible looking. It's uninspiring football. It's really bad. But it's hard to find teams that are as bad as South Carolina, Vanderbilt, and Kentucky. They are terrible. Well, good news terrible, for us. terrible. It is good news for us, and that's why we thought we could do well this year. So let's turn our attention from this past weekend and put the focus on Tennessee, Florida. This is the part of the show where we welcome in our Gator guest, and this week we have the editor of Alligator Army. All right, we are joined now by Andy Hutchins, the managing editor of Alligator Army, a sensational blog over at SB Nation, maybe one of my favorite follow- follows on Twitter. Andy, thanks for being on today. Thanks so much for having me. All right, so I'd love to ask you just a bigger picture question. You've been a longtime Gator fan. Do you have any favorite memories of this UF-Tennessee rivalry? And it's hard in some ways for people to remember this now, but the first two games of the 
2007 season were routes um, because those were Urban Meyer's Gators. Routing bad teams is what they did. And everyone and their brother was concerned about whether Tebow was going to be able to do it against an SEC team. The, you know, the questions were, can he throw the ball against the Tennessee defense? Is he, is he going to be able to run over guys against a good defense? Can he put this together for 60 minutes? Uh, Hicks Florida won that game 59-20. Uh, it was pretty much slaughter from beginning to the end of the game. It was not a close game. Tebow was excellent in that game. Um, Percy Harvin was fantastic in that game. Uh, it was, there was a period where I think it felt like for something like a quarter or more, he didn't get touched, basically, when he had the ball. Uh, and that was just a really good game to start off my introduction to the Swamp. People will remember that game, maybe most fondly for Cam Newton coming in, running over a backup, and everyone getting excited, Tebow especially on the sideline. But it was an incredible game. Andy, we know that you have your finger probably on the pulse of the Gator Nation as much, if not more, than just about anyone else. What's the current state, maybe, of, of the the avid follower that you'll see, uh, you know, on your publications, whether it be recruiting or the team or McElwain or whatever? What's just like the consensus kind of pulse of Gator Nation right now? You know, I think there was a point. I, I, it's flipped three times this fall, I think. I think people prior to the season were very much interested in seeing Florida prove it on offense um, and wanted to wanted to see an offense that looked as good as the offense did at times in 2015 behind center. And I think the U.S. game and sort of struggles that Florida had in offense on that game lowered everyone's expectations pretty quickly. Kentucky game on the flip side raised all the expectations. And I think up until the point at which Luke Del Rio got hurt against North Texas on Saturday, it was quickly the roller coaster was just kicking up through the off season, went down a slow, shorter hill after UMass, went back up for Kentucky, and then has gone down significantly since. And I think it's interesting that I've seen since Saturday some people who realize or who you know think that this defense is one of the best defenses in the country, if not the best defense in the country, which I agree with, and think that losing Del Rio is not a death blow to the season. But then I've also seen people who think that Del Rio was the key to Florida being good this year, which is, I think, an arguable position. And those people think that Florida went from being, you know, SEC East contender Florida, maybe even college football playoff contender Florida, which I think you have to consider any any team that wins a Power 5 division is inside an SEC era college football playoff contender, to this team's going to go 8-4, and 7-5 and five even, even. And I think it's, it's interesting to see how quickly uh, people flip back and forth on this team. And I think – there have been reasons for them to do it, and I do think Del Rio is very important. Um, but that makes it also hard to say that everybody is of one mind on this team. I think there's a whole lot of people still thinking the jury is out. And I do think that many, both of the avid persuasion and the more casual one, are going to wait until after this Tennessee game to really say the jury is out on these games. Andy, let me ask you about Coach McElwain. I'd love to hear maybe your overall thoughts on him, but kind of include in there 
How'd you feel about him getting on the field and kind of getting after some North Texas players and coaches? You know, to address that first, I wrote about this um, extensively on Sunday, and I'm recap I write called the Sunday Rundown, which is a long one that sort of touches on everything and so in as much length as I want to touch on it. Uh, and I mentioned that McElwain doing that comes almost exactly a year after he lit up Kelvin Taylor for the throat slash gesture that cost 15 yards against East Carolina last year. And I felt then that that, um, that reaction to Taylor deserved a lot of the condemnation that it got from various people in the media. I think that it was an old school coach thing that fire, but it, it fired a lot of Florida fans who want to see players coached hard and want to see players punished for mistakes. Um, it gave those fans red meat, I'll say. Um, and I think that there are a lot of fans who really want red meat out of their college football. Um, Florida fans, I think, the red meat varies from team to team, from fan base to fan base. But for Florida fans, I think dominance is really what they're searching for. I think 50 to nothing wins is really what Florida fans, who came of age in the 90s when Steve Spurrier's team for cranking out those 50-point wins, really want to see more than anything else. And I'm not necessarily that fan. You know, I think I am different from a lot of Florida fans in that while I was around for the 90s, to remember them, I don't think of that as a birthright in the same way that I think a lot of Florida fans do. And I don't think of that as the natural order of things as a lot of Florida fans do. And I think that it can be, it can be alienating to have minority opinions in any cultural space. But I do think that my minority opinion was right on that. And I think that McElwain made himself look a fool in some ways that time in 2015. Fast forward a year, and I think that McElwain standing up for his players and standing up against what he perceived as dirty play and what I think is probably universally acknowledged to be at least risky play, going low against a quarterback who's standing and throwing a pass, it obviously played a whole lot better. And I think it played a whole lot better, not just with players, but with fans who saw it and thought, this guy's going to defend his players. What do you think about McIlwain and his staff's ability to recruit? It seems to be a recurring theme amongst fans, amongst those in the message board, that this could be a significant weakness as we move forward. Do you agree with that? Disagree with that? I think the jury's still out. And I think it's hard for me to, you know, I, I'm saying the jury's still out because we don't know. We don't have enough data points. Uh, but also because you just don't know with recruiting until you're two or three years in. Um, and we're one and a half, not even in. Uh, do I think that McElwain's staff, as currently composed, is going to be chasing down five stars the same way that Alabama's or Ohio State's or Clemson's staffs are? No, not really. I think that there are a few ace recruiters on the staff. I like Chris Rumpf a lot, and I think most prospects who speak to Chris Rump like him a lot. I think Torian Gray is going to be really good. I think Kerry Dixon is really good. Um, and I think Tim Skipper is really good. But I don't know that beyond those four guys, uh, there is a above-average recruiter on the rest of the staff. Rump, I think, has done a fantastic job recruiting defensive line positions. Uh, not so much defensive tackle last year. That's one of the big issues. But 
defensive tackle was also really barren in Florida last year, and I think not taking anyone last year might allow for a really good class this year, so that's a good thing. Uh, wide receiver, I think, is the one position that has been best renovated under McIlwain. Despite the fact that it's a very green position right now, you're seeing the younger players are the ones that Florida turns to and trusts, which I think would indicate that Dixon is either a very good evaluator of talent or a pretty good developer of it. Um, and I think that that's, that's what you have to look at really early uh, when there aren't established players in positions when evaluating a staff's recruiting ability is, are these players who are coming in and playing better than what was there? And is that is it indicative if these guys are five-star guys that these recruiters are able to go out and get playmakers? Or was it if these guys are borderline four-star guys with you know Antonio Callaway being a pretty good example of this? Was the staff able to find somebody under the radar and pick them up? Um, and I think that that's a promising thing for Florida is that you know, Skipper and Dixon especially have been able to get a, a critical mass of running backs and wide receivers from which there are contributors already. So it's really hard for me to say with any sort of sweeping good or bad verdict that this McElwain staff is great or terrible at recruiting. Okay, Andy, give us a a quick prediction for this week's game um, and maybe give us a score. So the quick prediction is pain. Uh, I think that both teams are going to try to run the ball a lot. I don't trust Josh Dobbs. Uh, I don't trust him as far as he can throw it, which I don't know how far that is. Uh, I don't really trust Austin Appleby either. I think that both coaches would do well to not trust their quarterbacks all that much. Uh, and I think you might see 25, 30 carries from Jalen Hurd, probably 30 to 35 to 40 carries for Flores running backs, the four major ones. But I think you're going to see a low-scoring game because I do think that Tennessee's defense, despite the fact that it doesn't have Cam Sutton. I think Jill Reeves made in, though he's going to play, isn't going to be 100%. I think Tennessee's defense is probably slightly better than Florida's offense at this point. I think Florida's defense is significantly better than Tennessee's offense. Um, so you, you got a low-scoring game. In a low-scoring game, I think I've got to go with Florida. Um, I don't feel strongly about this. I think it's close to a coin flip. But I do think that what Florida can do on defense to shut down a team, even as talented as Tennessee, is going to make things easier on its offense. I think that you know, unless Tennessee scores early and things snowball, which is possible, I think, if Florida is going to be able to make it a four-quarter game, and I like Florida's defense's ability to make plays and or get enough stops over the course of a four-quarter game to win a close one. So let's say 17-14 or 24-17 or something like that. And I think Florida comes out on top. Andy, thanks so much for joining us today on the show. Where can the people follow you? So the best way to follow me if you're looking to talk to me about Gator Sports or just read about what I'm writing um, is at Alligator Army on Twitter. Just Alligator Army. Uh, the website is alligatorarmy.com. Uh, we try to have a Facebook presence at facebook.com backslash alligator army. Don't know how well I succeed with that, but we try. Uh, and I'm always around alligator army and always around that Twitter account. So you can find me there. But if you want to read things that I write about, not the gators, which, okay, I guess if you want, 
I am also at Andy Hutchins, A-N-D-Y-H-U-T-C-H-I-N-S on Twitter. Perfect. Andy, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. Tennessee week, it's the first really big game of the season for the Gators. I know you're pumped. I know little Peyton's pumped. What about him? Let's let's go. I mean, this is why it's fun to be a Gator fan. It's Tennessee week. I know I have a younger brother, and he went up there, and, and all, all of my life he'd heard me talk about how Tennessee is the greatest place to go to when they think they're going to be good. And it's not changing now. Uh, you know, yesterday there was there was yesterday being Sunday. There was a, a fine gentleman in Tennessee that decided that he was going to create a crowdfunding site for the death of Austin Appleby at this the game. funeral to pay for his yeah. funeral costs to pay for his funeral for his family because the <laughs> defense led by uh, Tennessee is is going to kill Austin Appleby in this game. So that's that's how intense this rivalry goes. Little Peyton, as I look at him right now. He just makes me happy. He's a war trophy that we took from a win in Knoxville many, many years back. We have not lost since then. Uh, there's more of a story on him in last year's podcast in case you want to get to the debriefing, but he's undefeated. And so we're going to find out in a little bit if we think he's going to remain undefeated. Uh, but this is just such a great week in the life of a Gator fan. I it's love this so, game. so, so much fun to hate Tennessee. And it's good that Tennessee is good again. I mean, it's, it's a more fun schedule you find out a lot about your team at this early juncture, and I'm excited for it. I'm pumped for it. Big question mark for this team. Huge. The overriding question is, can Austin Appleby be a competent enough quarterback for us to win this game? What do you think? Well, that's gonna we're going to find out. I, I think that there's a large overreaction from, from Gator fans, primarily because of the Will Greer to Treon Harris drop-off. Yes, and understandable. permanent fear that yeah. your backup quarterback is horrible. But the reality is, on paper, Austin Appleby is, is a better prospect because he's a much better thrower. I think Del Rio's a better passer, and the difference between those terms really comes down to accuracy, game management. The thing about Appleby is he's an elite 11 guy, so he's one of the top 24 quarterbacks in the country in 2011, then whittled down to the top 11 of which guys like Jameis Winston were in. Okay, certainly Jameis Winston, he is not. He goes to Purdue. He's from Ohio. Uh, you know, he's 6'5". He has a very, very strong arm, like an NFL strong arm. He can make every single throw outside the hash mark, deep outs, deep pitches. All the throws that Del Rio, I don't think, really can make as well. He can. He played at Purdue. He was essentially taking huge shots every single game. He's got a lot of experience playing on the road against big schools and big teams as well as playing at home. Hard to evaluate him. I watched a lot of film on him. It's very hard to get a good feel for what he's doing because he hardly ever had any time to throw. I think that led to happy feet, some early tosses, some speculative throws. Very risky throws. Right. My gut feeling is maybe if this guy hadn't gone to Purdue and he was able to have time behind an offensive line, he could have really been something. Uh, he's a great guy. If you listen to him talk, an ultimate team guy, really mature guy. People really like this guy. So you want to root for him. But you don't, you don't know. You know, the ward on the street is both him and Del Rio would move the ones about equally in uh, fall practice. Kind of the same. It wasn't a big difference between how well they could move the ball on the field in practice. But you never know what happens until the lights are on. And, and I think that's what it's going to really be about this weekend. But from a throwing standpoint, I think you can make an argument that Appleby can make more throws than Del Rio can. I do expect the offense to be tailored more towards his skill set which could be a benefit if we can get some protection because Tennessee has only seen Del Rio. They really can't watch Purdue film on Appleby because it's not going to be the same. 
Uh, and they're not necessarily going to know what to defend. And again, this is not a straight situation. This guy can throw the football. The question you wonder with him is he's got a little bit of long delivery and he's a little bit erratic at times. And, and that's what you don't want when you have a defense like ours. But I am not at all freaked out, scared, or super worried about Austin Appleby quarterbacking this game. Uh, it, it should be intriguing, but he's it's certainly capable from the toolbox that he has uh, to be able to, to win this game. And not only win, but actually do pretty well given the injuries Tennessee is experiencing thus far on the defense. He's an interesting guy, right? Because, you know, seemingly has the big arm. And, I, and the way people talked about why Luke Del Rio won the job is his command of the offense. And so how much in the interim has Appleby picked up? How much better is he? And he's going to have a full week of preparation. I think if he can just be competent and average – maybe slightly above average, we can win this game is my conception of how this will go. You're worried, like you said, if he is a little erratic, if he starts throwing it to the guys in the wrong jersey, as McElwain likes to say, that's immediately going to sink our ship, I think. so. Um, but I think they're going to put him in a position to succeed and win. I, I don't think they're going to ask too much of him. You're right, he's, he has a guy who's played on the road in, in you know big-time games in the Big Ten, well, as much as Purdue is in big-time games, but big-time environments. Um, and I, I'm hoping that the moment won't be too much for him. I don't know. It, it doesn't feel like we're dropping off a huge cliff. And this is why you bring a guy like Appleby into the program. If he's not here, then we're starting a true freshman on the road against Tennessee in one of the bigger games of the season. And they're bloodthirsty, you know, fans. So huge that he's here in the program right now. This is exactly why you bring him in. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, you, you stated that well with regards to kind of where things are. I read an article this weekend that talked about how we should bring in Kyle Trask. And I think everyone on the show knows I'm high on Kyle Trask. But it's surprising me how incredibly underrated Austin Appleby is in this situation. If you, if Again, if you just look at what he can do, you'd be excited about this kind of guy. Uh, he's thrown 2,000 passes, which is, you know, 10 times more than Luke Del Rio has thrown. He's an older guy, so he's got maturity and wisdom. But I think the problem is you look and say, oh, well, he's got equal touchdowns and equal interceptions, so he's kind of a gunslinger, which is true, but you have to be at Purdue. Most of those games, his Always team is down, down behind, yeah. 15, 20 points. But, you know, last year he played a game on the road against Iowa, the number five undefeated team in the country, Iowa. He put them within a touchdown of that game late in the third quarter, threw for 260 yards against that defense with the Purdue team that won one game. So he he's not going to be afraid to throw the football. This is not Treon Harris. This is not... A whole. This is not Todd Murphy. This is not a whole host of other quarterbacks we've had there. This is in a competent throwing quarterback. But we hope we do <laughs> not know what's going to happen when the lights are on. That's the thing. And I think Luke Del Rio had a whole year to understand the offense. He's very cerebral. He's very safe. And I think Del Rio thought. I mean, not, not Del Rio. I think uh, Coach Mack thought, "Hey, Del Rio is a good choice to pair with this defense." And, and that's true. I don't think that Del Rio is like. 80% the choice, and Appleby was 20. I think it was probably a lot closer than maybe some fans tend to think it was for that competition. Uh, again, I'm not saying that Appleby's going to go out there and light it up, but there shouldn't be this tremendous fear maybe the Gators have right now. I don't have that fear. Now, after this game, maybe Appleby just totally freaks out, but there's nothing that would lead you to believe that's the case based upon watching him on film. Uh, the main thing is some of his turnovers, and I expect the game plan to help him not have to do that, but to put a bow on this, there was a throw at the end of that game, this North Texas game, 
that Appleby came in and he overthrew uh, Moral Stevens, number 82, tight end. And it looked like oh, he overthrew him. It was actually a fantastic play. He stopped running the route. He read short. He read right. He snapped his head around and read the deep post, which is the proper route. It's a corner route. The proper route and a touchdown. He gets hit as he throws that ball. And Moral Stevens stops running the route. That was the best job of full field reading that was done on film all day against North Texas. So he can he can do these things that maybe Del Rio isn't really even comfortable doing. I'm intrigued to see what's going to happen. So hopefully all these things I'm saying are one, we don't know, but two, this could be potentially a just fine situation. And it, no matter what happens, testament to McElwain to picking this guy up. Because like you said, that's the key. That was what you do to address your holes in your roster. We did it, and it's going to hopefully pay dividends this weekend. But let's look at the other side. Tennessee as a senior quarterback who's played a whole lot and thrown a whole lot of passes. We don't know what the heck he's about because no one knows if he can really pass. What's your feeling on Dobbs? Every time I watch him drop back in an obvious passing situation, he seems really unsure and frightened. Uh, I don't fear him throwing the ball at all. I mean, he's got a decent arm. He can put the ball downfield. Um, so you have to respect that and cover that. But I think if we give him confusing looks and we're you know, able to put some pressure on him, which I think we will, he doesn't threaten me as a passer at all. He does as a runner. And that's where we last year you know, let him run on us. And if we do that, we're going to be in trouble. But yeah, he's not a guy I think at this point that really terrifies you. He's not going to get drop back and carve you up. Now, Dobbs, he cannot pass. He he. I've watched every single game now. There's nothing that leads me to believe this guy can pass a football. Nothing. Most of his yardage in these games comes from these these five and six yard passes that go for 25, 30 yards. He he's highly inaccurate. He doesn't throw the ball on time. He doesn't have good vision down the field. He doesn't have any sort of pocket footwork. If his first read is not open, he wants to run. Even now as a senior. He's a smart guy, and that analysis, I think, partially causes him to freeze sometimes. But he's tremendously gifted with his feet. He's their second leading rusher. That's what they fuel themselves off of, and that's like what you said they got us last year on. And even with last year, uh, according to this year, he hasn't. I don't think he's grown at all with how he passes the ball. So we've got good film on him. We know what he wants to do. We know what Tennessee wants to do. Their receivers don't have a plus matchup against us. I don't see how he passes the ball consistently in this game unless they have gadget plays that somehow consistently fool us. They just cannot line up and throw the ball against our defense, which is, if I'm a Tennessee fan, I'm worried. I have no faith Dobbs can do it. We're going to find that if he can magically flip a switch, but I don't believe in players just flipping switches for things they can't do technically. Um, On the flip side of the ball, though, an intriguing matchup. So we know the offenses have a lot of question marks on both sides. We consider and talk about it, but a lot of question marks. The defenses for both of these teams are good. Let's start with ours. We've talked a little bit about it already. The Gators defense facing their first real opponent this weekend. What do you what do you think about that matchup? I love it. If we can hold them in our base front, meaning like if if we can play nickel the whole game, we're gonna like just destroy them. Now, if we have to put a third linebacker on the field, which we might need to, if they're just going to run heavy the whole time, then let's see if Collins is, you know, too stubborn or not. With that's that's been a contention with me and him. Of course, he doesn't know about that, but that he won't put that third linebacker on the field and really try to stop the team that's loading up to run against you. The only time they really did anything last year was those trick plays, the throwback to Dobbs. Um, broken plays, some of the zone read stuff that we're having trouble with at the beginning of last year seems like we've buttoned that up a little bit. 
if we can get pressure with our front four, maybe just sending one guy and we can keep playing nickel, it's hard for me to imagine a scenario where they put up a lot of points. Now, they're going to empty the playbook, I think. They are going to try some crazy stuff. They almost have to. They can't march up and down the field. And then, uh, you know, I don't know. The big X factor, I guess, is their running back, Jalen Hurd. If he runs wild and he's capable of doing that, um, that will give us trouble. Outside of that, I feel fairly confident we're going to be able to clamp down to them. I mean, I feel extremely confident. On paper, this is a horrible, horrible matchup for Tennessee. They have a porous offensive line. It wasn't supposed to be porous, but it is. It's probably the worst part of their team. Um, They're giving up a sack one every 10 or 11 dropbacks, and we're amazingly creating a sack one every four. Every four passes a quarterback drops back, we're sacking them, which is absolutely maniacally insane. Um, so something's got to give there. That's really bad on, on, on paper for them. And, and in general, I don't see a situation where they can fix that. There's there's not one obvious guy that's wreaking havoc. Like we talked about, it's sacked by committee. Who do you focus on? What do you do? How do you do it? And the silver lining this year is we've played three games in a row where a team has run a whole lot of zone read against us. Whether they spread us out and try to run it. We've actually seen that this year. And we know the zone read last year ate us up. But I expect them to bring Marcus May down into the box. And Anzalone is a huge difference maker. Yes. Uh, when he's in there with Davis and Marcus May, those are three of the best run-stopping defenders in the whole country. Maybe the three best. Really fast, really instinctual, great. Very hard. I think it's going to be very hard for them to create running lanes. Hurd is not off to the season he was off to last year at all. He's having a hard time running the ball. Not a lot of good running lanes. He's a big physical guy, but they're just not opening up the holes. So I'm just not sure how Tennessee is going to score unless, like you said, it's flukes. And then let's flip to their side of the ball, their defense creating things against ours. That seems to be the big matchup to watch for me. What do you think about their defense? It's solid. I mean, they haven't given up a lot of points. They've created some turnovers. It's hard to know what we're, what kind of output we're going to get out of this unit, though. They are missing some guys, um, injuries. Um, we'll hear some more on that later in our interview with Bob Kessling. But they're a little bit of an enigma. I mean, they've, they haven't really like broken down. But I do feel like we can move the ball against them. I, I don't know. That's gonna it's gonna be a struggle on both sides, I think, to really put up a lot of points. What about you? Yeah, Bob Bob Shoup is a Mac talked about him in his presser today, uh, you know, from Penn State, coached a lot of other big schools. Big get for for Butch to have this year. Uh, he runs a four three style defense, which we saw we did against a four three against Kentucky. Uh, he he wants to keep a linebacker matched up against a slot receiver. This is where having Callaway in the game, and then if you want to dream having a, an effective Cleveland in the game down the road, is a total game changer. Now you have a Brandon Powell against a linebacker, and Tennessee does not really have a true guy at that spot yet. They haven't recruited for that kind of guy. So uh, he likes to keep size on us out the run. That's his primary goal. Uh, and, and at any rate, so far we've seen the offensive line do a really good job with our one game against a 4-3. Admittedly, it was Kentucky's 4-3. But I think that's favorable for us. He's also very aggressive. He likes to blitz. Uh, we did pretty well against North Texas with the blitz. Again, Tennessee's different. But this matchup to me is going to define potentially the rest of our season. Let's say Appleby winds up being average or below average. Win or lose or whatever the case may be. We know we're getting Del Rio back. This is going to tell us a lot about who our real offense is. I think I've seen progress each week. Can we move the ball against their unit, which has probably been underwhelming given the expectations. I think they're waiting for their breakout game. 
So interesting matchup here. This to me is obviously the best matchup for Tennessee, but they suffered so many injuries last week. I'm I, worried about their defensive line putting pressure on our offensive line. They've had three sacks the whole year. They're they're 100th in, in the NCAA in, in generating pressure on quarterbacks. A lot of this matchup starts to tilt to me to say it's in favor of our offense, which seems kind of crazy given the production we've seen, but... It's they hard do have to some make guys with talent. Barnett. Yeah, they have a lot of talent, but you have to you have to hope for that talent to all of a sudden come together because it has not been on film yet. So just looking at what we've seen, it, it requires more hope as a Tennessee fan. As a Florida fan, to think you're going to win this game, and certainly they're they're happy to hope that that's going to be the case. But so far, I feel pretty good about the statistical matchups. Let's talk a little about the coaches. Butch Jones is the guy we put on the hot seat before the year. His seat's real hot, as we had said it. I'm not sure he's done really anything to cool that seat off with a poor game against Ohio last week. Probably should have lost. Not probably. Definitely should have lost against Appalachian State. Comes into this game in a most unique situation where I think, it, to me, it feels like he has to win this game or he's not going to survive. Yeah, I was around someone who's pretty close to Coach Jones. And some of the stories he was telling me about him is that he's a giant ball of stress 24-7. And you can see that on the field, and I think it affects his players. Is sometimes why, maybe why they've lost these leads. Um, I heard a story told to me that um, when the Virginia Tech job opened up, that they offered it to him, and he really considered taking it because he thought the pressure would be less at a place like Virginia Tech. So that shows me that he's cracking a little bit. Now, it's an immense amount of pressure at an SEC school. It'd be difficult for anybody. But I don't know if he has kind of the mental makeup to win big time football in the SEC, and if this is his year, right? He's got his team is no longer young, no more excuses. He's got to win, and I don't know if they're going to do it, and I don't know if we'll see him back next year because of that. So I could see him breaking the stress. So keep an eye out for that if Tennessee starts to crack as a team, maybe led by their coach. And past performance is the best predictor of future success. It's not perfect, but but Butch being a guy from that story that's really high-strung, very stressed out, his team sort of seemed to play like that. And so not surprising to me. They always say that teams take on your coach's mentality. So big, big game for Butch this weekend. Also a big game for Jim McElwain. There's still a lot of questions on offense. There's still a lot of Gator fans that are frustrated with what's going on. And, of course, we want to win our 12th in a row against Tennessee. Any streak that you drop always feels like, oh, my gosh, what happened? Mac, do you think he's realizing this is maybe a a bigger game than just normal? I don't know because there should be that much pressure on the Gators, and that's big in this matchup in terms of the mindset. Tennessee, a ton of pressure. You know what? If we lose this game... Backup quarterback on the road. Tennessee's favored to win. I don't know anyone's be like really all that surprised or upset. So it seems like a lot of just freedom. Everybody down in the Gators using that as fuel. And Mac, you know, I don't know. Closing practice this week, right? Normally it's mostly closed. Like the media's only there for a couple minutes. But I don't know. A little gamesmanship. Doesn't want them to see Appleby. Doesn't want to see what kind of defensive packages we're putting in. Do you like that move by him? I like it a lot because I think it's a huge... There, at anything that happens, there's always an unintended consequence to it. And, and this mm-hmm. is an unintended benefit, potentially, is that you literally... Max is an offensive schematic genius. I've seen it happen. He's great at creating matchups. Don't even give the press a chance to write about anything Appleby's doing. Don't let them write one buzzworthy article on Wednesday that says, or man, that Appleby's not well really crushing the seam. Or, also brilliant, the flip side of the coin. Don't let them induce any doubt into the team. Because from what I've heard from the players in the team, they legitimately don't worry about Appleby performing 
the only thing they're going to reiterate is, hey, look, like any player on any college football team, you just don't know what happens until the lights are on. Practice is not a correlation. So they're not afraid. This is not a Shreon situation. And I think it's smart by him to just control all of the environment as you head into this game and let the game speak for what goes on from there. So good move by him. I applaud that one. I like that. Um, some news and notes on some health. Obviously, Callaway, super important. Is he going to suit up this weekend? Looks like he is. I mean, he's listed as questionable, but McIlwain's injury reports are usually something like, that guy has a leg, or, oh man, he's hurting a little bit. So we don't really know. He doesn't really divulge. He's not compelled to. He's listed as a starter on the depth chart that they released today. So all signs point to him playing. I I have to think he would have played last week, even, if that had been a big game. So hopefully he's going to be out there at most uh, full strength. Hopefully. Oh, absolutely. Hopefully. Thigh bruise. You never really know. Those things can be bad with regards to hampering your ability to sprint and cut and run. But I would be shocked if he's not out there playing at a high level on we Saturday. Really, like we said, we really need him out there. Okay. Uh, important question for you. Tennessee announced today that they're wearing their smoky gray uniforms. Are you frightened? I'm, I'm super frightened. I, <laughs> I do applaud Tennessee for going with Nike and with Nike for changing their color. I don't know if anyone's wanted to point this out, but Tennessee is no longer Tennessee Orange. And watch this weekend. Take a look at the checkerboard in the end zone. Take a look at all the fans wearing Peyton Manning jerseys in the stands. And then look at the color orange that's on their helmet, that's on their accented smoky gray jersey, and know that that is not Tennessee Orange. So even Nike was like, this color is so bad, we can't actually have them wear it. We're going to make it more neon. But now we introduce the the smoky gray mystique. So I hope the players are all excited. Uniforms don't mean anything. Yeah. Doesn't make anyone play better or worse. Even Nike couldn't sell puke orange. But I have to say, I loved our orange and blue look. The blue jerseys, orange pants. Thought that was tremendous. Love to see that a few more times this season. All right, James, why don't you walk us through our keys to victory and our predictions here? I think this is, for me, simple. And maybe maybe for those of you listening, you're thinking, is James like off his rocker? Did he take some drugs today? Because I sound way too optimistic. Yeah. And normally I'm the one that's like, oh my gosh, this is terrible. This quarterback's bad. I don't see anything I like. But hey, I, I, I always try to say, I look at the stats and I look at the film and that's how I make my predictions. It's not perfect. It's not on, on the money all the time. But in this game, I think it comes down to one key. I'm going to boil this whole ridiculous game down to one key. And it's going to come down to how many interceptions Appleby throws. So far, our running backs don't fumble the football. P. Ryan had one fumble on his first carry. And since then, the ball does not come out of anyone's hands, which is remarkable, first of all. Second of all, if our defense is as good as we think it is, which I think is the best we've had, maybe the one of the most special defenses college football has seen, if everyone stays healthy, we'll see how that goes. It's not going to take much from the offense to win this game. And I don't think Tennessee can move the ball against us. So if my assumptions are true, turnovers via the interception, which tend to be pick sixes, which Austin Appleby has thrown many pick sixes in his career. Again, different circumstances, but he has done it. So I'm going to put that number at two. Two is where we we flip coins. If he throws two, we can win, we can lose. It's probably pretty close. If he throws one, I have a hard time finding a narrative where we actually lose the game based on the stats. So I'm going to put it at two. Two is a coin flip, three is a loss. That's the stat to look for. I can't wait to talk about it on Monday to see if that is or is not what it is. I'm going to literally boil all down to that one key, which maybe sounds too simple, but that's what it feels like for me. How about you? Well, that's pretty you know, simplistic there, but I like it. I, I was going to say that it's going to come down to Appleby. Can he have enough command of the offense to get us to 17 points? 
okay? Uh, and I think the defense, they've got to play honest here, okay? They can't start gambling on some of these, you know, like looks where they're jumping routes and stuff like that because I do think Tennessee is going to throw the kitchen sink at us. They're going to try a bunch of crazy plays. It worked last year. They're desperate. They're going to do it again. So if we can avoid the big plays getting gashed by Dobbs um, in, in the run game, that's my key for us on defense. And then, like I said, Apple be being competent. I just want like, you know what? You don't have to be the superstar. Just be efficient. Don't turn the ball over. And this is going to be a really emotional game. Yes. So the first quarter, if you want to add an emotional category to this pick, is crucial. If we come out winning at the end of the first quarter, I think our chances of winning are like 90 plus percent. If we get down by some bizarre set of circumstances, however, maybe like 10 nothing, that could be really bad for us. We're a super young team, third youngest in the country, starting a quarterback who has not played or featured for the Gators yet. A lot of things could go wrong here. The first quarter is going to be very, very important for us. Uh, they've got fans that are looking to jump off the bandwagon, and we have a team that's unknown. So we want to really win that first quarter. I imagine our game plan will be conservative to indicate that, to make sure that we're in the game, and then you'll probably see us open things up as time goes on. Uh, so with that, let's make some predictions. Alan, what do you got? All right, I'm going to go 20 to 13. It's close, and I think one of those touchdowns for us is going to come on some kind of turnover, interception, fumble, something like that. What about you? And Gators win 2013. I'm not really sure how Tennessee's going to score a touchdown, but whenever I feel like that, I always give a team a touchdown, and I'm also going to assume they're going to they're going to make a field goal. So I'm going to give them ten. Uh, if we don't give them offensive points, but I don't think we will. I just don't see how they score really even any points the way our defense is played. But um, I'm going to go 27 for us. I think this is going to be a convincing victory, and if it's not, then we're going to have to reassess kind of where we are depending on how it looks. But I think there's a lot of signs that line up for us to beat them convincingly. They, they've been a very smoke and mirrors team. We've had our own question marks, uh, but we have more or less been rather completely dominant on one side of the ball. And to me, in a matchup like this, defense should win. We have the better defense. I think we could I think this, we could run away with this game. I think, I think things could implode for them, and I want that to be the case. I want us to win our 12th in a row as we literally implode Tennessee yet again and they have to get a new coach they and start could, all over again. They could crack under the pressure. Like I said, all the pressure on, on them, no pressure on the Gators, you know, except for just the general. They want to win the game. So that could be the key. Let's find out what a Tennessee longtime insider, voice of the Vols, student, one-time walk-on thinks about Tennessee's chances. Really excited for this week's guest. Bob Kessling. He's the voice of the Vols. He's been the voice of the Vols football team since 1999. He's been in the area since uh, 1977 and even before that because he graduated from the University of Tennessee. Bob, thanks so much for joining us today. Good to be with you guys. So tell us about the state of mind right now of Tennessee and, and the Tennessee fan base heading into yet what's another interesting game for them against Florida. Well, I think at this point in time, the fans are happy that the team is 3-0. and They're not exactly happy the way they got to 3-0. and They thought some of these games, like against Appalachian State and against Ohio, they would have steamrolled those opponents, and they really didn't. Uh, they were able to figure out ways to win. Um, I, I guess the most amazing snap, stat uh, that, that comes forth is uh, and just kind of indicates how 
fortunate Tennessee is to be 3-0 and and how sloppy Tennessee's been at times getting there. Tennessee's fumbled 11 times this year, and they've lost one of those. And that was a, a punt return that Cam Sutton fumbled that App State took in for a touchdown. But uh, since then, offensively, they've fumbled 10 times, and the ball has just bounced their way. The fact they fumbled going into the end zone in overtime against App State, and that could be the winning touchdown. It was recovered uh, by Jalen Hurd as Josh Dobbs fumbled. So uh, I guess to say that they've been sloppy and that they haven't really played with a lot of sharpness, and it's of course the coaches will tell you it's you know it's a game of eleven and and one guy's breaking down and that's what it's costing them. Even if that's the case, they're still going to sharpen things up a lot against Florida. Uh, you just can't be soft, sloppy in the SEC and survive. Um, you know, Virginia Tech fumbled five times against Tennessee and lost all five of those fumbles. And uh, that really helped Tennessee uh, turn that game around and was really the winning edge because they had a short field and scored several times against the Hokies. So I just think trying to tighten things up and being crisper and more efficient offensively this week is uh, the main thing that Tennessee wants to get done. You mentioned one of the more compelling figures in this game, Josh Dobbs, senior quarterback. I think – uh, all of college football is maybe waiting for him to get to the level that he can pass the ball you know, at an efficient enough rate that would allow Tennessee to win championships. Do you think he can get there this season? Well, they've been saying that for three years. I mean, is he going to get there? Is he going to do this? One thing he does, he makes plays. When you need a first down or you need him to make a great throw, he does it. There's some other times you kind of scratch your head and think, well, you know, his footwork's not very good, and he doesn't throw spirals, and he threw that ball behind that receiver. If he would have hit him, he would have been open. But when it's third down and eight, and they need a big play to keep the drive alive, or more importantly, win the game, he makes them. And that's the one reason he's playing, is that he, for whatever reason, he's a playmaker. And when you need him most is when he steps up the most. And it's not always the prettiest. It's not always the way you draw it up, and a lot of times the coaches shoot their fingernails right down to the nub, but he makes plays, and uh, he's been very, very efficient as a starting quarterback at Tennessee. Uh, you know, Everybody complained last year about his passing percentage, that it wasn't up where it needed to be. Well, it was 59%, and I'm sure there are a lot of days back in the 60s and the 70s if you had a quarterback that was completing 59% of his passes, they'd probably be in the running for the highest trophy. But now anymore in the spread, because of so many short passes and little flip passes and jet sweeps where they throw it six inches forward, and that's counted as a pass, uh, they want you up around 64 65%. He's right at 60 this year, but that's still not where they want him. They want him to be more accurate. And um, I contended last year that one of the reasons that his percentage was down is that his wide receivers didn't help him very much. They were hurt. The, the ones that played uh, didn't. You could probably catch the uh, count the great catches on one hand that they made last year. They're deeper at wide receiver. They're younger this year at wide receiver. These guys that just aren't making the great plays to help him out. So if Josh Dobbs is to complete a pass, he almost has to get the numbers, and uh, that's kind of hard sometimes for a quarterback with all the pressure and, and the blitzes and things that they face. And I'm sure that they're going to put a lot of pressure on Dobbs this week. Looking at this week's game, what are the matchups that you think are in favor of Tennessee? Maybe some of the matchups that you're worried about. Well, I think the one area to start, the biggest concern is defense because of the injuries that uh, Tennessee's incurred. They're going to be without two of their top players. 
Darren Kirkland Jr., who was going to miss his second straight game with an ankle injury, and Cam Sutton, who was a senior cornerback and one of the best cornerbacks in the SEC, uh, broke his ankle last week against Ohio U. So both of those guys are out. And then Jalen Reese Maven, your emotional leader, and another guy that came back, passed up a chance to go to the NFL to come back. He's questionable, uh, although I think he's going to try and play because of a, a shoulder that he injured last year and he re-injured it last week against Ohio. So even if he plays, uh, you know, how efficient is he going to be? Now, Tennessee needs him on the field because he's such an emotional leader. But uh, you're, you're down a lot of players. One of your backup uh, linebackers last week uh, blew his knee out, Corte Sapp. So it was amazing. About every other play, one of the Tennessee uh, defensive players went down with an injury. And um, so when you lose three of your, at least two of your key players, and maybe three of your top players on defense, that's a big concern. So that is one of the big matchups. And the other matchup that Tennessee is really, I think, needs to be concerned about is in the offensive line. They have not blocked very well in the offensive line. They've not protected Dobbs very well. And as you know, Florida is a tremendously talented defense. So Tennessee has been juggling personnel on the offensive line. They hope to have Chance Hall, who has been injured and hadn't played a game this year, who probably would have been the starting left tackle when the season started. But he couldn't go, so they had to put a freshman out there, Drew Richmond. And in the last two games, they've been juggling guys, just trying to find the right combination. So uh, how Tennessee's offensive line holds up against the Florida defense uh, will be a big factor in the game as well. So if Tennessee loses this game, what is the pressure like on Butch Jones? I mean, I don't think he would get, obviously, fired afterward, but is this essentially a must-win game for him? Pretty close. Pretty close. Uh, This is a game that everybody's had circled on the calendar. It's always been big since they split into divisions. This Florida game has always been big because if you lose the first game to Florida, then suddenly you're behind the eight ball the rest of the season trying to get to the SEC championship game. And then Florida has a two-game edge on you, so that, it's it's always a big game. But uh, you know, I think the Tennessee fan base has been through so much with all the coaching changes and trying to rebuild this program. And now you see all these good recruiting classes that uh, Coach Jones has put together back to back to back. Now you're expecting some dividends. You know, something's supposed to be paid out of that. So uh, there's no excuse anymore that it's a young football team because it's not. It's is no excuse that you don't have a lot of talent because according to the rating services and according to what you told us, you do have a lot of talent. So now you expected them to come through. And uh, I do believe the Tennessee fan base got pretty spoiled in the nineties, probably just the same as the Florida fan base because winning so much and competing for championships everywhere, every year, winning a national championship and, you know, having Peyton Manning and winning conference titles and going to Atlanta, people enjoyed that, got spoiled by that. And they're anxious to get back. And um, so, you know, Coach Jones, I think, had the situation. Do you tap down that enthusiasm or do you build off it? Well, when you build off it, they expect you to produce. And so there's a lot of people that are just sick and tired of losing to Florida and think this is the best year they've, they've uh, got to beat them because, you know, Florida's – they've changed coaches and their offense has struggled. And, and I think last year's game just uh, really infuriated everybody because – I think most people thought that Tennessee had the better football team, but they didn't win. And that's that's been a case several times during this losing streak, that they maybe they've had the better team, but they haven't figured out a way to win. So now they expect Tennessee to figure it out this week, and they expect Tennessee to figure out a way somehow to beat the Gators. And 
and I guess you could say put them out of their misery of losing to Florida every year. So it's been a frustrating streak, and uh, and anytime you have a rival that you you haven't beaten in a long time, it just makes the the intensity more. So they are ready for a win over Florida, and uh, we'll see if they can pull it off. So we know that you've been to a lot of venues in the course of your your sports career with Jefferson Pilot, as well as obviously being the voice of the Vols. What are what are a couple mm-hmm. of your favorite venues, and what are a couple of maybe the worst venues you've been to? Well, you know, Florida is one of the toughest ones to work. You know, I was I did sideline some some years for Jefferson Pilot, and Florida uh, is a is a great place to come if you if you don't have a dog in the fight. If you if you're the opposing team. You know, it's hot, it's loud, you're close to the field, and so it's an intimidating place to come. Kind of the same thing with LSU. Uh, you know, you're basically the, the, the stands at LSU come right down to the field, so if you're working the sidelines, you literally, they make you take a knee so the people that are sitting in those front row seats can see the field. So that makes it interesting at times. But you're awfully close at uh, LSU. Outside the conference, uh, my favorite place to go, the places we've been, has been Notre Dame. Uh, I just think it's a special place. They they value their tradition up there. They, you know, they don't have to put up a lot of championship banners. They don't have to have Heisman Trophy posters everywhere because everybody knows the history of Notre Dame. And the, you know, the, I guess they have made some renovations since last time we were there with some some more luxury boxes. But pretty much, it's still wooden bleachers and with splinters in them, and they're crowded and. Uh, Concession stands are still kind of crowded, and, and you still see the old stadium, and you see the Golden Dome. It's a pretty special place to go, and uh, they're, they they really enjoy their tradition and their football up there. So, if uh, if you're a college football fan and you got a bucket list of places to go, uh, I, I would put Notre Dame on that list. All right, Bob, let's play a little word association game. So, James and I are going to throw a couple of names or words at you, and just tell us the first word that comes to mind for you. All right. Okay. All right. How about Alabama? Tradition rich. Steve Spurrier. Uh, evil genius. Peyton Manning. Uh, great character. Great quarterback. Phil Fulmer. Uh, dogged determination to win. Eleven in a row. Frustrating. Josh Dobbs. Uh, big playmaker. Jalen Hurd. Tough, big and fast. Jim Harbaugh. Uh, deceptively, uh, crazy. I love it. How about Tennessee Orange? Love it. Jim McElwain. Potentially good coach. Jabbar Gaffney. Didn't catch it. <laughs> How about, all right, one last one. How about the swamp? Intimidating. <laughs> and hot. Intimidating and hot. That was a great answer on Jabbar Gaffney. I was I was at that game, and he, he definitely did not catch that. Um <laughs> <laughs> All right, so let's let's go on the record here with the prediction this week, if you're allowed to make such a thing. Um, we know, I've discovered, thanks to Google, that you do two things on game day. One is you wear Boston Celtic underwear. And I do. Yeah. I like that, and I'm, I'm, you'll have to tell us about that. And two, that you wear an orange tie 
that only mm-hmm. remains in your collection if the Vols win. So, well, it, that's that's not totally true. I, I never wear a tie in football with a loss in it. So, uh, if it's a really nice tie that's got some sentimental value that my daughters or somebody gave it to me, then I will wear it for in basketball season or for you know if I have speaking engagements and things like that. But it never makes it, its way back into Neyland Stadium. So, uh, the tie I've got right now is right in a nine-game winning streak. And uh, it's one of the longest streaks uh, I've had. It got kind of expensive there for a while because I had to keep replacing ties every week. But uh, it seemed like uh, during the Lane Tiff and Derek Dooley eras and stuff like that, we went through a lot of ties. Thankfully, now it's starting to slow down a little bit. I I will tell you a funny story. uh, um, And if it's really a bad loss, then uh, sometimes the tie didn't even make it out of the locker room. And – so, but I, you know, I get them, I, I get them now from family members and from friends. And so I've got a pretty good stockpile of orange ties that, that, uh, that I have, but, um, we were, Mike Hamilton, when he was our athletics director, uh, he was kind of, he was a clothes hound still is. And so he always looked sharp and wore, wore really nice clothes. And so he went to this, uh, uh, banquet for some students here on campus. And some of our football managers were, there and they were receiving awards for some of their academic stuff and so one of the uh one of the managers had uh, really a good looking tie on and so uh, mike came up to him and said hey that's a great looking tie where'd you get that he said i got it out of the trash can at notre dame after kessling threw it away <laughs> so, that's great so, <laughs> so uh anyway it, uh, I, I i know we lost a game at auburn several years ago that tie didn't make it out of the airport at auburn things like that but it's just kind of a, a superstition and uh, but i've been a long time celtic uh, fan since the days of larry bird and uh, so i remember bird always used to look up at the banners and think about bill russell and the championships and so uh when i started doing play-by-play stuff i started wearing uh celtic underwear to remind me that you need a championship effort tonight so that's kind of why i do it Oh, I like it. Do you think that the tie you're going to wear on Saturday is going to make it out of the locker room and, and into the week after? It's a pretty expensive tie, and I think my wife gave it to me for Christmas, so I think it might have to make it out. But I, I'm pretty confident it's going to make it out. I think we're in good shape on that. You got a you got a score for the game this weekend? You know, I think it's going to be close. I, I think all these games have been close the last several weeks. I, I think if Tennessee takes care of the football, I, I think – Florida is going to have a hard, especially with their quarterback situation. I think they're going to have a hard time scoring a lot of points against Tennessee. And I know Tennessee is going to have a hard time scoring against Florida. So I think it's going to be a close game. And, uh, um, you know, I, I, you know, Tennessee's favored and I, I think Tennessee is going to figure out a way to win. I just, I just have that feeling. I think it's going to be difficult, but I think they are going to figure out a way to win. Cause um, you know, this game turns on big plays and it turns on, on turnovers. I mean, last year it turned on a big play by Florida on that long pass. Um, so it's one or two plays here and there. But uh, I just, uh, I think playing at home this week is going to be a big factor for Tennessee. And I, I just think they're better than what they've shown. I, I think that their offense is better. I think they're going to open the playbook up a lot more. You remember last year, uh, uh, Tennessee burned Florida on a long uh, throwback pass to Josh Dobbs, and so I think you're going to expect to see some of that. I just I think Tennessee's going to be a lot better offensively, and I, I'd be shocked if they if they had nine penalties like they had against Ohio. You just you just kind of knew the focus wasn't there, and for whatever reason, 
And um, so, but I, if you're not locked in and focused for Florida, then you don't need to be showing up at Neyland Stadium on Saturday. Okay, so for Gator fans in Knoxville this weekend, can you give them maybe your favorite restaurant in the city? Well, uh, there's a couple right around the stadium that if people are close, there's a Ruth Chris and, of course, Calhoun's on the River, which is right down from the stadium. It's uh, uh, got uh, terrific barbecue, and it's right on the river, so that's a pretty good place to, to go. There's uh, downtown is what they call the, the Old City, and there are a bunch of good restaurants in the Old City. Uh, there's Cafe Four and and uh, a bunch of other ones down there. So you can – there'll be a lot of music and a lot of people. So if you, if you get downtown, just wander around. And then there's a place called Turkey Creek, which is out west if people are staying out west. Uh, and it's got all the major chains, and it's got some some other local restaurants. And another Calhoun's is out there. There's a, a couple of sports bars and a bunch of places. So we, uh, you know, for some reason, Knoxville is a test market for a lot of restaurants. And I guess they say we have more restaurants per capita here than a lot of other cities in the country. And uh, they they a lot of startup chains and and things like that. Uh, open here and test market and so we're blessed you can go to a different restaurant just about every night if you want to and can really get good food so we'll take care of the folks when they show up here bob thanks so much for being with us before we go we would love to get you to end this segment with uh sort of your signature phrase when every game opens that it's uh, football time in tennessee you have to pay for that we uh we don't give that away free you have to <laughs> have to listen have to listen to that to get that one so Anyway, we're, but uh, we're, we're looking forward to the game. I know it's always been a great, uh, it's been a great spectacle when these two teams play, and they've had such a long history of great games. I expect another one on Saturday. I think, uh, I think, you know, it's interesting. I think Jim McElwain will figure out a way to move the ball on Tennessee, and I think Tennessee's defense is going to throw some stuff at Florida to to, to make things uh, kind of complicated. So it's it's going to be a great chess match, and that's that's what makes SEC football so great because you never – I mean, like the Georgia-Missouri game last week, who would have ever thought that – I mean, the way Missouri played last year, that you didn't think, well, Missouri's no good, and they, Georgia had to throw a last-second pass to beat them. So you never know how these, how these 18, 19, 20-year-old kids are going to uh, show up on Saturday and how they're going to play, and that's what makes it so much fun. Well, Bob, thank you so much for being on today. The voice of the Vols, a real pleasure to get a chance to talk with you. Really appreciate it. Okay, guys, I appreciate it. Hope to see you this weekend. So not surprisingly, Bob picked the Vols to win. You and I picked the Gators to win. Vegas says the spread is seven in favor of Tennessee. I think a lot of that has to do with the Triana effect from last year. Vegas looks at new rosters, but also heavily bakes in what happened at the end of the year. So maybe we're all homers. Time will tell this Saturday. We're looking forward to it. Other notable matchups this Saturday, uh, and there are several in the SEC, Georgia travels to Ole Miss. Thoughts? It's going to be a clarifying game for both those teams and for a couple other SEC teams. Yeah, if Georgia is what I think they are, they're, they're going to lose that game. I'd be almost shocked if they win at this point. Arkansas at A&M. Big game. Probably Big game. for the maybe the second-best team in the SEC West, maybe SEC overall. Yeah, and Arkansas. We'll find out if they can continue their sort of high-wire act and win close games this year like they've started off with. And then lastly... LSU, a, a team no one really knows about at Auburn, maybe Gus Malzahn's last stand. Someone said this is the buyout bowl. Chris Musgrove, shout out, who's not listening, but the loser has to buy out their coach and fire him. <laughs> and with that, we'll put a bow 
on Tennessee week. Can't wait for this Saturday. Always tons of fun. Uh, hopefully we come back on Monday. Really excited about yeah, it. Looking forward A to discussing the Florida win. Hopefully. Gators team. Yeah. All right, guys. Enjoy the week.